0: one thumbs up. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles as you get started. Let's pick Mark. On the screen, you're looking at Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. All three of the Synoptic Gospels cover episode 50 in the Galilean ministry, The Healing of an Epileptic. It's a bit of a mislabeled episode. I have come to the conclusion that this has nothing to do with epilepsy. But we will uh, outline it and uh, go through the study here together. Again, we're making use of a Harmony of the Gospels, adapting it from a couple of different sources. And uh, so these are not necessarily my own chapter titles. I'm dealing with the uh, episode titles, the material that we're adapting. Nevertheless, uh, Matthew 17:14 through 21 gives us about seven verses there to work with. Eight verses, I guess, inclusively. Uh, in Mark, we have the longest of the sections from verse 14 to verse 29, and some of those are a little bit longer. I think the word count is more than double any other gospel record. And then uh, Luke 9, 37-42 is actually the shortest of the accounts that uh, describes this episode. Just uh, six verses long there. Yep, six verses long. Alright, so Mark 9, I think is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. We will pick up details from the other two Gospels, of course. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice once again at your faithfulness and we thank you for being so faithful in our lives day by day. We thank you for this time of study this morning and ask for your hand of blessing upon our Bible study, setting aside distractions, taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we had a week off last week, so it's been a couple of weeks since we've been gathered. I appreciate uh, the prayers for my travels and... uh, ask that you might return to those same prayers. (laughs) As uh, in the morning, I am again flying back out to the northwest. And uh, no no classes will be canceled, however. I will be returning back early Sunday morning, and so there's not going to require an adjustment to our teaching schedule. Appreciate the prayers for the family. Byron is now in glory, and that's the good news. We don't have to pray for my brother-in-law anymore. But uh, my sister and then the extended Lyon family and everything there. Still requires additional prayer support. Alright, in uh, Mark chapter 9, we will note, as in the case of all three Synoptic Gospels, whether you're looking at Matthew 17 or Mark 9 or Luke 9, we're dealing with the aftermath of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus and the three, uh, Peter, James, and John, are coming down off the mountain, and as they return, they find that the ministry did not pause while they were on a business trip, that uh, the ministry continued, the angelic conflict continued, and those that were left behind, as we say, uh, had to be equipped to deal with what they had to deal with, and uh, part of the training ministry, of course, is that you get this kind of training, this kind of on-the-job training, and so Andrew and the remaining disciples had to deal with some conflict, and they didn't exactly handle it very well, and so we'll see what the Lord had to do when he comes back into the picture. Uh, Mark 9, verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, now why were they so amazed? Amazed that he came back? (laughs) You know, what what was it that they were expecting? Anyway... um, And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son uh, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and uh, they could not do it. And he answered them and said, "O unbelieving generation Uh, in the Matthew and Luke accounts that's lengthened out to unbelieving and perverted generation and we'll spell that out for you here Uh, how long shall i put up with you bring him to me when they brought the boy to him uh in verse 20 when he saw him immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion and falling to the ground he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth and he asked his father how long has this been happening to him and he said from childhood It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. What a statement. If you can do anything. Yeah. You only created the universe. I think you can uh, handle something like this. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, If you can. Talk about the indignation there in his voice. All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Oh, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is right right there. I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he he came to the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive him out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. All right, that is the Mark record. It is the fullest and most complete account for this episode. There are a handful of issues that come up from... Supplementary details that come in on the part of Matthew and Luke, and we will make comment on those as we come to each one of them. First of all, just by way of introduction, this event, point one in the outline, this event features the inability of the disciples to cast out a demon and provide for the healing of an individual. And the language employed here leaves no doubt that they could not, they were unable. This event features the inability of the disciples to cast out a demon and provide for the healing of an individual. First time in the life of Christ in the gospel record that we have encountered uh, a miracle that didn't work. Or a work of divine power that just wasn't up to the up to the task. And so obviously we want to examine this with some care. We want to find out if something doesn't work in the Christian way of life, why is that? Is that is that our fault? Are we doing something wrong? Uh, Does the empowerment we receive have a finite value? Are there limits? Are there there flaws on our part by which we can uh, blame uh, a miracle for not taking place? We want to make sure that we're careful with this because when you start to deal with our more uh, charismatic brethren and Pentecostal uh, brothers and sisters and so forth, oftentimes they will use similar concepts uh, as part of their Excuses why a healing doesn't take place, or why a miracle is not granted, or so forth. They uh, they're so wrapped up in a Christianity by experience that when the experience doesn't pan out, they have to find a, a, a rationalization for that. They have to find something to explain it. Otherwise, the whole basis for their experience-based faith is kind of uh, damaged. And so, typically, they will uh, ascribe a lack of faith, for example, on either their part or the part of the person who was expecting the miracle. Uh, It was not brought up here in Mark, where we're told that it's just because uh, this kind is only removed by prayer. In Matthew it says, because of the littleness of your faith, the oligopistos, or the oligopistia, uh, that you have small faith. And so we want to combine the Matthew record and the Mark record to realize there are actually two explanations, first of which does have to do with a uh, faith deficiency, and then the second one has to do with a prayer deficiency. And when we put them up side by side, you're going to see that they're really the same issue, that a faith deficiency is a prayer deficiency when you and I are expected to ask for all things, believing that any time we ask without faith, we are actually insulting the spirit of grace that has provided us the prayer provision in the first place. So that uh, all of that's going to come way at the end under main point eight when we get to the conclusion of this, of this study. So it does feature the inability of the disciples. And we want, to, we want to ask ourselves that. The language that's used here is the language of can't. I oftentimes, when I'm trying to encourage believers, I say, you know what? We don't deal with the language of can't. With God, all things are possible. But when we allow ourselves to be plunged into the I can't do it mentality, we're left without answers. And as far as the disciples were concerned, that's where they were. They didn't have answers and they were trapped by their I can't do it mentality. And the father of this of this boy, um, we don't know how old he was or what age boy he was. We can speculate some. Uh, But the father of this boy uh, was also in a can't mentality. I brought it to the disciples. I told them to cast out the demons as if he has rights to boss them around and tell them what to do. But now he is trapped into a cannot mentality. He says that the disciples cannot deal with it. And so I think this whole episode here is going to really be a blessing for us today, next week, however long, you know, three weeks. I don't know how long this will take. I hesitate to say that a class is going to take two or three Wednesdays and we end up being in this episode for a month, (laughs) you know, six to eight weeks. No, I don't think it'll take that long. But I think there are so many details here that are going to touch upon Many of the the realms that we deal with on a daily basis, the the can't mentality or the hopeless situation. Prayer doesn't work. My spiritual gift isn't operating. Things aren't working the way they're supposed to go. And so we're left kind of discouraged or confused as to why things aren't happening. Sub point A. It also provides the most thorough and descriptive account for in-depth studies on demonology. When we do an exhaustive study on demonology, don't get me wrong, there are many other passages that we have to incorporate. Uh, Legion is a, is a prime example. We've already covered the Legion episode. There are additional episodes. But to my thinking, this one, this one is comprehensive, thorough and descriptive. We find details on the, the rage that motivates demons. We find the purpose clause In this passage that mentions the destruction of humanity. One of the reasons why he was thrown into the fire and into the water was an attempt to cause a physical death. And uh, there are many other glimpses here. We also find more questions than answers, to be honest with you. (coughs) More questions than answers. But at least we have clues that we can leave as open questions and allow ourselves to consider the implications and recognize that we uh, have to be content with what's revealed and we have to not try to peer into realms that are beyond what, uh, what he has revealed. All right. Again, from Mark chapter 9, the uh, material here in verses 14 through 29. We have, secondly, under point B, the title for this episode is Unfortunate. I'm just giving some introductory comments here under point one. So, point B, the title for this episode is Unfortunate, as the demonization of the youth has nothing to do with what modern medicine would refer to as epilepsy. So, even though the title is called An Epileptic Healed, right, under point one, Epileptic Healed, that's uh, a bit of a misnomer. And the title for this episode is Unfortunate as the Demonization of the Youth Has Nothing to Do with Epilepsy. We're not dealing with a medical episode. We're dealing with a demonic spiritual episode in this in this uh, chapter. And we're going to take some time to spell that out. Now, some of the symptoms seem epileptic. And some of the behavior that's exhibited could, uh, you know, lead towards a diagnosis of, of epilepsy, if, uh, if we removed all of the details that we have in terms of the demons involved and just for the moment pretend that, that, that that's not a factor, and if we view this simply as a, a physiological uh, event, then a doctor might be led to, sus- to uh, suspect epilepsy. And a doctor, just by viewing of the, the seizure and the foaming of the mouth and whatever else, uh, might be uh, suspicious of epilepsy. They might track the, the, the frequency that it takes place. They might decide to uh, put this boy in a, in a uh, hospital somewhere where they could measure him long-term kind of thing and do the, the brain scan they've got to do long-term in order to properly diagnose epilepsy. It takes days, if not, I think weeks, actually, in the long-term scanning that they have to do. Well, they didn't have any of that back in those days, obviously. What they did have back in those days was a healthy respect for the reality of angels and demons. They actually had, in the ancient world, a much better um, grasp on the spirit realm that I think modern doctors today ignore. That uh, modern science today, modern medicine today, uh, completely discounts anything in the realm of, of, uh, of spiritual life anything in the realm of demons or fallen angels and so forth, does not even come into the thinking of modern medicine as uh, far as what could be causing these physical effects. So we're kind of trapped dealing with uh, contrast between modern times and the ancient world. All right, context now under point two. While Jesus, Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Andrew and the remaining disciples encountered a spiritual battle of their own. While Jesus, Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Andrew and the remaining disciples encountered a spiritual battle of their own. See, the conflict doesn't stop. Because the Lord has uh, gone for however many hours or days that it was, you know, we, we really need to orient ourselves to the ancient world and if they if they traveled uh a, a dozen miles, that was a full day to get there. And then whatever long the event took and then a full day to come back. Travel uh it was not like in modern times where you just go to the airport and travel twenty eight hundred miles and you're you're back before the next church service Sunday morning. Time goes by. Also, uh, the point indicates, Andrew, um, and some speculation on my part that in the chain of command of things, and Andrew was the senior ranking disciple. When you study the uh, Dedeck Apostologue listings of the twelve apostles, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew are consistently the first four that are mentioned every time. The order changes somewhat. Peter is always first, but those four are always in the top third of the twelve apostles. And uh, typically then, when Peter, James, and John are singled out, like the Mount of Transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane, other events where these three uh, are taken apart from the rest, uh, it's natural to figure that Andrew then is the one left in charge of the other, the other eight disciples. Regardless, What was the battle featuring? Well, there were two issues, and I'm kind of curious as to which was worse. Obviously, there was a demon, a demon resistant to their casting out. That tends to be the focus of the passage, tends to be where most of the commentaries fix their attention, where most of the preaching takes place, and rightfully so. It draws the bulk of the content of these verses. But there's a second battle at work. It's not as highlighted. In fact, there's only a single verse, I think, that really spells it out. And that's, uh, or a couple of verses anyway, verses 14, 15, and 16. The second battle were the scribes, resistant to their teaching. And clearly, there was an argumentation process. The arguing with them was continuous over time, described here in verse 14. Now, whether this was Caesarea Philippi, or whether we don't even know precisely the exact town or village, (coughs) or maybe it was even out of a town, but there was a crowd there at the bottom of the mountain, or whenever they returned. So there was a demon resistant to their casting out, and there were scribes resistant to their teaching. When they came back to the disciples, they, they saw a large crowd around them. The crowd is actually in the active voice. It's accomplishing the activity they have uh, gathered. And then they started to run up to mob the Lord. Some scribes arguing with them. The content about it, we don't know. But clearly, given the... attempt to cast out the demon, and given their inability to do so, we know that the Jewish people had their own practices and traditions with respect to exorcism. They had their own rituals by which they could do certain things. The Lord uh, even threw it back on the Pharisees when the Pharisees said, Well, he casts out demons. He he, uh, drives out Beelzebub by the power of Beelzebub, the, the ruler of the demons. And Jesus said, Okay, well, if that's the case, then how do your guys do it? When uh, when when your sons cast out demons, so they were involved in some shady practices themselves, utilizing um, non-biblical practices and and whatnot. It's likely that that's the scope for which they were uh, arguing. We don't know. But, you know, I find it interesting is that the Lord sends out his disciples to teach, not to debate, not to argue, not to uh, contend with. The uh, opinions of Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and the various other uh, political groups of the day. He sends them out to teach and their teaching is with authority, not like these scribes that are here. And yet, interestingly enough, those that are not involved in a teaching activity, they want to argue with those who are. And I find that to be extraordinary. Nothing new under the sun is there. It's the same thing we observe today. All right. Another similarity to a previous event comes under point three. Like the Syrophoenician woman, the father of the demoniac boy makes his appeal on the basis of mercy. On the basis of mercy, and we don't know the uh, the race or the background of this man or his son. We um, tend to think of this in a, in a Gentile application. Uh, given that we understand him to be on the, uh, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, we understand him to be on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in, uh, in more of a Gentile territory. And yet, um, the presence of scribes here does bring a Jewish context back into, into view. So we just don't know. It's not, the scripture doesn't say, and we don't want to say one way or the other. But we do observe the similar appeal to mercy like the Syrophoenician woman had. Uh, We see it again with some um, lepers, some Samaritan lepers crying out for mercy. There's some other blind men that cry out for mercy in addressing the son of David uh, and ask for mercy. And we don't know the Jew versus Gentile status of those blind men. But anyway, the approach to mercy I find significant. If you ever break down the studies between grace and mercy... um, the ideas here in mercy really bring about the, the complete recognition that that there is no deserving. It's, it's, it's beyond grace. Grace understands that there's no merit. It's all God's riches at Christ's expense. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. Grace is is a free gift. But mercy is even beyond that in terms of how even uh, beyond any idea of merit, the fact that you, not only do you not deserve anything, but you literally deserve not to receive the blessing, you you deserve, even to a further extent, in this in the case of the Syrophoenician woman, you know she knew that she was just a Gentile dog barking for the table scraps, and uh, she didn't deserve a miracle, didn't deserve a meal, didn't deserve uh, certain things, and uh, so I find a similarity with the case here. We can look back to Matthew 15 quickly, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew 15. <coughs> In verse 22, Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord. Curios, Same address that the man had. He called uh, the father of this uh, lunatic, called uh, Jesus, Curios Called him Lord. Son of David, my daughter is cruelly demonized. Cruelly demonized. Uh, kakos is the adverb there. And then... Uh, um, attached to the verb to be demonized. very similar to the description of, that this man offers with respect to his son, Matthew 17:15 Lord, again, curios, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is cruelly, shall we say, uh, seriously, very ill. The We'll uh, give you the vocabulary on this here in a moment, but the idea of uh, suffering rather than illness, he, uh, he suffers cruelly. He suffers severely. It's the same adverb that the woman used with her daughter when she said her daughter was uh, uh, cruelly demonized, which I find to be kind of interesting. How do you... How could you be demonized any other way (laughs) besides cruelly? Is there a a demonization that's not as bad? Moderately demonized, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, it's the same kakos. It's the same adverb that's utilized there, that's utilized here. Only here, rather than demonized, it says that he is uh, suffering. Pasco, uh, suffering cruelly, suffering severely. All right, now the bulk of our study today, I think, is going to focus on the boy, let's look at him under point four, the son. You know, I think that so many of these uh, episodes um, really uh, fit well in the family class um, atmosphere like we have here and the, the aspect like with life of David, life of Jacob, life of Christ, where we're hitting on so many of these issues that are really family issues and you're dealing with, loved ones and you're dealing with those that you care about and you're dealing with uh, certain things that even the father himself dealt with because the father gave his son that we might have eternal life and here we have an episode with an only begotten son and uh, the man that is uh, at a loss because he loves his only begotten son, and yet there is the angelic conflict in, in, this, uh, in this episode. And so when Jesus encounters this, you can imagine the details and the, the thrust of an only begotten son, a monogenes. the same language that we have in John 3.16, that a monogenes is suffering, and that uh, the demonic realm appears to have the upper hand. Uh, it's, it's really it's something that hits him pretty hard, wouldn't you think? and he uh is motivated to um to some pretty shall we say um touchy emotions he's moved he's left almost speechless he's frustrated over an unbelieving and perverted generation and he he almost in despair almost in in uh, a negative way, says, how long shall I put up with you? See, now don't get me wrong, he's not Carl, he doesn't sin, but it does reflect the difficulty with which emotionally um, a believer who is walking in the light has to uh, endure those that aren't. And uh, it's, it's amazing. You've got people who who despise the word of god don't take time for teaching don't have a priority for anything in the realm of spirituality uh maybe they call you things or what have you but then when things get tough where do they turn oh let's let's run to jesus and he'll he'll uh solve this problem for us see anyway we'll uh we'll address some of those matters here shortly as well all right now who is this boy So point A, we don't really have a clue as to his age. I don't believe he's an adult son, but he's no longer a young boy because the reference to that he's had this condition since his childhood seems to indicate that he's no longer a young child. But some of the terminology uh, allows for him to be a little bit older. Anyway, it's called a son, which is a fios. Now that's uh, a son by position really does not give us an indication of age. It could be an adult son called a huyas. The huyas is the language of sonship in terms of uh, authority or position. Jesus Christ is the huyas to the son of God. So it does not speak of him being young. The other terms, though, do. We have little clues in uh, all three of the gospel accounts. But the term huyas is used in, in the introduction to these uh, passages Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, Matthew 17:15, Mark 9:17 and Luke 9:38, all three places use huios in their uh, expressions. Luke 9 also uses the term only begotten monogenēs, 3439 is the Strong's Index Concordance number. monogenēs in Luke 9:38. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my monoganes, my only, one-of-a-kind, unique. Now, some of the uh, consideration to make with monoganes... Manos, we understand mono only. And then Ganesh. Now the key to understanding Ganesh is coming from the adjective rather than from the verb. I think if you take Ganase as coming from a verb Ganao, meaning to give birth to or to beget, Ganao has conception applications in most places, but it does have uh, actual birthing applications in some cases. And in some cases, ganao doesn't really differentiate between the conception and the birthing. It just has to do with producing of an offspring. Um, but if we, if we take monoganae as the mono ganao, the only one ever birthed, then uh, we we relate it to the birth, in which case begotten is okay, only begotten son. Um, but we run into issues there because there are uh, passages that describe monogenes uh, with individuals. Most notably, Isaac is the monogenes of Abraham, but we know that he was not the only one birthed by Abraham, not the only one ganaod by Abraham. Ishmael was ganaod first. And then uh, Ketur had seven other sons in addition to uh, the two from Sarah. And so if we if we limit monogenes to the only one ever birthed, I think we run into some problems. But if we take genes as coming from not ganao to give birth, but we take it from genos, meaning kind. You're familiar with the classification of, uh, you know, in, in biology or botany or zoology, so forth, where you have kingdom phylum order genus species right familiar with that got some high school students here nodding all right well the genus and the species are the last two the lowest levels of the the typographical the, the system there and the latin genus genus comes from the greek genos g e n o s and uh, i believe that's a much better Uh, derivation for the monogonase. The monogonase is not only begotten, the monogonase is only uh, one of a kind. His one of a kind son. See, God the Father has many sons. You and I are sons and daughters of the Father. And we are begotten of the Father. We are born not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, see, in terms of our new birth in Christ. And so uh, we are sons of the Father, just as Jesus is the Son of the Father. However... There is a huge difference between Jesus and us. He is literally and ultimately the one of a kind. There is none other like him, sinless, perfect, eternal, uh, the God-man of which there is only one. So uh, anyway, there's a lot of work to do with that. And I spend the time here to highlight this because it will come up again in the very last verse that we deal with, where in verse 29, he said to them, this kind... This genos, this kind, kind of what? Well, kind of demon, kind of evil spirit, unclean spirit, this kind of spiritual force of wickedness in the heavenly places cannot come out by anything but prayer. And we understand that there are actually different uh, classifications of spirit beings. They're not all the same. They're not all of the same constitution, or the same makeup, or the same origin, or the same uh, nature. There are distinctions to be drawn between spirits. Anyway, I'll spell that out for you at the end of the study, and we won't go into a tremendous amount of detail, but just enough to recognize that there are uh, some deeper angelic studies that we need to take place. All right. He's also called a boy. Two different terms, pice and Pideon. Pice is a term for youth. Pideon is a, dimin- is a diminutive sort, but Matthew and Luke use pice, and Mark uses Pideon. Pais is number 3816, and Pideon is number 3813, if you want to put Strong's numbers attached to each of these. And these give us a little bit of clue as far as the age is concerned, that this is not an adult son, by being called a pice, he is still a youth. He might be, um, I think there's a, a reference to Isaac as a pice, perhaps, uh, when he's being sacrificed. He could be upwards of about 20. He could be a teenager. Uh, he could be old enough to be married, but not actually married. Pideon is more diminutive, and so... Uh, given all this a uh, little bit of information here it's likely that he's probably uh, not yet teenager but still not yet but still older than simply a toddler i think the indication when he says how long has this been happening to him and he says well since childhood obviously that means that some time has gone by but not so much now that he is a a grown adult man all right now let's get the details from each gospel starting with matthew so let's flip over now to Matthew 17, and we'll get the details out of this one. Matthew 17:15. <coughs> Under some point B, we'll give you Matthew's details. Point C will be Mark. Point D will be Luke, just so you know. I don't know how far we'll get this morning. I don't know how long my voice will hold out. Plus, we could hear a trumpet any moment, anyway. So this is all, this is all speculation. Rapture pending. All right, Matthew seventeen. Similar situation here. When they uh, came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, and saying, "Lord, Kyrios, or the vocative Kuri." Have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. How many parents say that, actually, about their children? This actually mirrors a lot of prayers. I I recommend this if you have adult children. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. All right, and then just fill in the blanks and details after that. All right. I actually like the word lunatic. I think it's a proper English rendering, much better than epileptic. Let's not uh, confuse lunatics with epileptics and, and mix and match those because they're not the same. All right. Have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and is very ill, or he is severely suffering. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Now, in the Matthew record, Matthew is focusing on the cure in Mark and Luke, and the father here makes no reference to a demon. Uh, the demon is brought up in verse 18, where Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out. But the father, in Matthew's record, does not mention the demon. All right. Now, in Mark and Luke's record, the father does. So, I don't believe the father was ignorant of the demon. The father knew about the demon. Uh, but in the words that Matthew records... Uh, Matthew chooses to emphasize the health aspect here. So I brought him to the disciples and they could not cure him. So uh, we've got some details here. Uh, we want to focus on the term lunatic. We want to recognize what is very ill. Does it have to do with, with uh, a health concern? Uh, it does not, actually. We'll talk about that. And uh, then the falling in the water. I believe that in the Matthew record, even though it doesn't use the word demon, when it uses lunatic and when it uses uh, the uh, the cacos pasco here, the, the very ill suffering wickedly, I believe has a spiritual connotation attached to it. That the sun is under spiritual oppression. And that the uh, symptoms here are, uh, the, the injuries he's sustaining are being sustained physically because of the spiritual oppression that's taking place. See, we, we, we talk, and this, why, why is this important? We say, well, Pastor, I don't care. Believers can't be demon-possessed. doesn't bother me today. Okay, well, think about it after a while. And uh, I agree with you. A, a believer cannot be demon-possessed. Because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and unless the strong man is bound, and that's not going to happen. So we understand that. But can a believer still listen to the demonic whisperings? Can a believer still be um, uh, influenced and oppressed? Can a believer still suffer? Well, I think Job and Paul answer that, right, and King Saul. We've got three examples right there of believers who suffered physically. Because of demonic, not possession, but demonic oppression, as we as we label it. And then, uh, if uh, if a demon uh, pushes you into a, a flame, or plunges you off a cliff into a water, if uh, if there is a suicidal impulse there, you know, are you going to say, "Oh well, you know, demon can't possess me"? No, you weren't possessed. But what drove you to that point? What pushed you into that? water, and so forth. All right? Not a full possession and control, but yet an oppression and an influence. <coughs> and to what extent does that take place? So I think all of this requires a closer scrutiny. <coughs> Demons take the form of phlegm. <clears throat> I don't know. All right. <laughs> all right. What does Matthew say here? First of all, <clears throat> let's deal with the lunatic. Sub point one. He is a lunatic. The footnote says moonstruck. Moonstruck. Depending on which New American Standard Bible you're reading, some (coughs) New American Standard have a footnote there and some do not. My pulpit edition does not. Another one that I have at the house does. And it's not simply a a difference between the 95 update (coughs) and the older New American Standard either. Different Uh, editions, different publishers, or different uh, editions may or may not have the same footnotes. So he is a lunatic. Footnote moonstruck. Vocabulary is seleniodzomai. From selene idzomai. Selene means moon. You know any girls named Selena or things like that. Okay. There was even in ancient Greek mythology, there was the moon goddess Selene. <clears throat> now, uh, Selene yadzamai only occurs twice, both in Matthew, the verse we have here in chapter 17 And all the way back to chapter 4. So let's look at that. Just hold your finger here real quick. Look back at chapter 4 and verse 24. (coughs) The news about him spread throughout all Syria. Interestingly enough, I believe that's the same region we're, we're currently dealing with. In chapter 17, they brought to him all who were ill, and those suffering with various diseases and pains. And then it goes on to describe demoniacs, epileptics—that's our term, Seleniadzama, and I, I believe epileptics is an unfortunate translation, and I believe epileptics is uh, is uh, incorrect. Because Greek actually has a term for epileptic. And uh, believe it or not, it's the very term from which the English word epileptic comes from. See. And I'll spell that out for you here in some point too. But I find it amusing, just on a linguistic basis. There's nothing funny about epilepsy, but on a on a on a linguistic basis, if you have a word from which our English word comes from? Like epileptic. comes from the Greek epileptikos. Alright? Just pronounce epileptic with a funny accent and you, you're, you're almost there. Epileptic or epileptikos. Okay? And then you've got another Greek word. Why would you take this other Greek term and call it epileptic? Now, it might be similar. It might be interrelated. It might be... Uh, There might be some overlapping symptoms. But don't give it the same word. Give it a similar word. Or give it something different. And in this case, with Selene, oriented to the moon, what's wrong with Moonstruck? I don't mind Moonstruck. Okay. Wasn't that a movie? It wasn't a guy movie, though. All right. No dragons, no sores, nobody died. All right. <clears throat> anyway, I'll talk about that again here in a moment. But we have noticed the the, tripl- the triplet here: demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. So we got a trinity there, and demoniacs is right next to the the Seleniazo, the the uh, moonstruck, which. Begs the question then. What's the difference between demonized and moonized? Moonied. Okay. We've got demoniacs. I guess then we have mooniacs or something, right? Not a maniac, a mooniac. Alright. The construction is similar to the demonized afflicted by demon concept. This eczema is the same thing. Daimonidesamai. You've been idzamized uh, by a demon. Okay? The same, uh, it's like uh, in English. You put the, the eyes, I-Z-E, on the end of something. And you've been something or other. Okay? Ized. Alright. So, uh, da, uh, daimonidesamai is to be demonized. To have a demon afflict you, you've been demonized. Makes Make sense? Now, Selenizamai, you've been Selenized, moon as it were. Okay, that's what we're trying to say. Similar construction. Now, we actually know quite a bit about Seleniyad-Zamai, not from the New Testament, per se. As I mentioned, there's only two instances, both by Matthew. Dr. Luke does not use the term, by the way, when we look at loose vocabulary. Um, there is, and good luck writing this all out, if you just abbreviate CCAG, all right, Catalogus Quoticum Astrologorum Graecorum, CCAG, 12 volumes, published uh, between the years 1898 to 1953. It was a project over 50 years long to catalog everything. And what they cataloged in this CCAG project was a vast body of Latin literature from the first century and beyond where the Latins, the Romans, had compiled uh, all of the wisdom that they could from the Greeks. That's the Graecorum part. So it's a catalog, it's a catalog codicum, it's a... Um, uh, the encoding of all the Greek astrological wisdom. Everything that the Greek philosophers could tell them about astrology, about the planets, about the stars, about their mythology, about the gods, about the moon, for example. And uh, a vast body of literature uh, compiled... (coughs) as I mentioned, in uh, 12 completed volumes over a a 50-year span by uh, 20th century scholars. Anyway, if you do find such a reference, look up volume 9. Don't don't have to read all 12 volumes. But in volume 9, section 2, pages 156, on page 156, look at point 10 following. Anyway, you will find some detailed descriptions on Demoniacs, epileptics, and seleniacs. They distinguished between the three concepts. They understood people that were afflicted by demons, and the Greeks called them demoniacs. They understood people afflicted by epilepsy, and they called them epileptics. And they understood and recognized people that were afflicted by the moon, and they called them uh, seleniodzami what I'm calling seleniacs. It's my own word. You don't find that in a dictionary anyway. Demoniacs, epileptics, seleniacs. They actually encompass all three terms. (coughs) It's known by Greek writers. What I'm saying, Matthew didn't just make up this term. He used a term that was very well known. Now, classical Greek recognized epilepsy. It had numerous word forms for it. And you note, they all start with epilep. In fact, the adjective has epileptic. Here's the adjective uh, right here. E-P-I-L-E-P-T-I-K-O-S. Epilepticos. The classical Greek recognized epilepsy and it had numerous word forms for it. They had a verb. They had a two verbs, actually. They had an adjective. They had a substantive adjective used as a noun here. Epileptuomai, epileptizo, epileptikos, and, ep, and uh, epileptos. Epileptos. I think I left an accent off of epileptos. That's okay. So... If this is indeed epilepsy as a medical condition, (laughs) there was no shortage of terminology that could be used. Matthew could have used it. Certainly Dr. Luke could have used it. But it's not here. It's not here. In fact, it's nowhere in the New Testament. Only once in the Septuagint. And I find that to be significant. These terms are well attested by Hippocrates, Agathinus, and Galenus very well known Greek well Galenus was 2nd century Greek Roman Agathenus was again Greek Roman these terms are well attested going all the way back to Hippocrates 5 centuries BC so it's not like it's, uh, it's a new term that Dr. Luke was not familiar with <laughs> alright Dr. Luke would have been very familiar with the writings of Hippocrates don't know that he took the Hippocratic Oath, but it's reasonable to assume that he would have. Agathinus would have been a contemporary, first century A.D., same as Luke, same as Paul. Galenus was a century later, so that is, is, sometimes we're a bit unfair if we say that, oh, well, a term was well known. Well, y- well, yeah, it was well known if it was five centuries old, but was it still in use five centuries later? you got to consider that. Today, in the 21st century, we don't use terms that are five centuries old in a lot of cases. There's some old terms from the Shakespearean era, right? There's a whole lot of Shakespeare vocabulary I don't use. But if the term is still in use in my day, and it's still in use a century after my time, then it's reasonable to assume that, that it's, it's, it's well known in my time. And so, <coughs> by finding the examples in Hippocrates, five centuries prior, to Agathinius in the same century as Luke, and then Galenus a century later. Sometimes Galenus is just called Galen. Wrote a uh, had a, a lot of medical works and in, in, in a, in a uh, work on anatomy. The Septuagint uses it in First Samuel twenty one fifteen. You remember this from the life of David. First Samuel twenty one fifteen. Let me get to First Samuel here. before psalms or after psalms oh there it is I'm teasing I do so much typing anymore rather than flipping that uh, sometimes I have moments where i got to stop and remember alright David took these words to heart and he greatly feared Achish king of Gath so he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why, why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Anyway, this was the context for which the Septuagint chose ep- Epileptos or Epileptos in... Uh, in this, in this context, for madman. All right. Verse 15, I believe, in the English. Verse 16 in the Greek. The Septuagint is versified a little bit different. Secondly, again, the term epileptos. An interesting account of the treatment of epilepsy by Rufus of Ephesus. You ever heard of him? Probably not. Rufus of Ephesus in the second century A.D. He wrote a uh, description of epilepsy and how to treat it. Indicates a purely physical understanding of both cause and treatment. An interesting account of the treatment of epilepsy by Rufus of Ephesus in the second century A.D. Indicates a purely physical understanding of both cause and treatment. In other words, by this point of time, already in the ancient world, they were starting to draw a distinction between a medical condition like epilepsy and a spiritual affliction like a demoniac or seleniodzomai, a mooniac. The moon affliction. So, already by this time in the ancient world, they were drawing distinctions between epilepticos and seleniodzami, uh, recognizing a purely physical, medical situation involved with both cause and treatment with respect to epilepsy. And so, <coughs> when we come to this episode. In all three gospel accounts, the uh, translation of epilepsy is very unfortunate, or the concept here is not medical, but rather spiritual. All three gospel accounts testify that the demon was the problem, and that driving out the demon produced freedom for the boy. The boy didn't have a medical condition, and that the only infirmity that he had was injuries sustained by the violence done upon him by the demon. So under point C then, I like the English word lunatic to translate this. I like it a lot. Because of the etymology of lunatic. Lunatic is our English word that comes from the Latin with reference to the moon. We do have Selena. There are English saline roots. They're just not very well known and they're not very well used nearly as much as the lunatic term. The English lunatic corresponds to the moon. The Latin is lunaticus and is preferable to epileptic medical terminology. I would rather not use medical terminology in this passage. I would rather use lunar terminology in this passage because that's what the New Testament uses. So the Greek manuscripts use. He is a lunatic. The only problem with lunatic is that we associate we associate lunatic with crazy people. All right. When we think lunatic, we think insanity. We think uh, the guy is nuts. We have got a lot of terms for. <laughs> and we go on for hours. I'm already at the top of the hour. We've got to end here. Um, but, and, and they used to think, in, at least in some cases, that with the waxing and waning of the moon, that there were effects that could be observed. They still think this. They still do studies to this day on the effect of the moon. Uh, we, we would talk about it all the time in the jail. We could tell when there was a full moon. It was based on how the, how the inmates were acting up. Now, you know, not like I'm a scientist or have any impartial studies, but it just happened way too many times. Anecdotal evidence, you'd say, okay, got to be a full moon tonight. So what is the effect of the moon? And what powers, remember there they are principalities and powers of the heavenly places, what powers have a greater strength during those phases, as it were. Well, we see it exhibited here. All right, more questions than answers. But we will come back in a week. So you've got one week to dwell on the lunatic. And we'll come back and uh, spell some more details out here. We'll get to Mark's account, and Luke's account. And then we'll see the disciples. Remember, the disciples had authority to cast out demons. They had authority to cast out demons, even to raise people from the dead. So why couldn't they cast this one out? So, uh, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll break this out. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the strength you supply. We uh, thank you for being so faithful and merciful in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.